Welcome to TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council, coming at you from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you're all safe and sound out there as the country continues to face the COVID-19 crisis. Today's show is a replay of our virtual town hall with Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins. Judge Jenkins has been at the forefront of Dallas's coronavirus response, and he spoke with Trek President and CEO Linda McMahon about the steps the county is taking to increase testing and follow Governor Abbott's plan to gradually reopen parts of the economy. He also took a few questions from Trek members who joined the call. We're very appreciative of the judge for taking some time from his very busy schedule to chat with us. Our call took place the same day that Dallas County commissioners voted to extend the safer at home order until May 15th and maintain restrictions on non-essential businesses and large public gatherings. So there was certainly a lot to talk about. Unfortunately, we faced some technical difficulties in producing this episode. We had initial plans to share the video recording of the call, but certain complications made that impossible. So we're releasing the audio as a podcast instead. We've done our best to optimize the sound quality, but there are still some parts of the call that sound less than ideal. We apologize for that and ask that you please bear with us. If you're listening to us for the first time, please subscribe to the show wherever you download podcasts and be sure to follow Trek on social media. We'll link to our handles in the description. Now, here's Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins in conversation right here on TrackCast. Uh, Judge, thank you. This is Linda McMahon, president of the Real Estate Council, and this is a, a Zoom call, but it's through another, another product called Ring Central, but it oh. works the same way. So yeah. just uh, to let you know that. Um, but I want to thank you for joining us today. I must tell you, your ratings have never been higher, and we have over 100 members who are on the call today just to hear from you. Uh, well. So we Appreciate that. Our commercial real estate leaders are following your lead, but also appreciate your willingness to listen to our concerns, particularly as it relates to keeping construction going. That's been very, very important. This morning, we had a CEO call with 40 CEOs of commercial real estate businesses, and they're working on their plans for the future. So we're here to support and provide assistance to you as you lead us through this crisis. And uh, we appreciate your time. Our members are anxious to hear from you. But first, let me ask you, how you how are you and your family holding up? You know, we're holding up pretty good. Thanks for asking. Uh, strong family. We got everybody. A lot of you may know my mama. Mama, I pulled mama out of the senior living center. She's hanging with us. So, uh, you know, life is good here. Uh, just a lot of work. Uh, I know they're getting stir crazy. and uh, But they, they get to see me through the door of my office. It's glass doors. That's. <laughs> <laughs> That's our family time. Well, thanks for asking. How are y'all doing? Well, I think we're we're doing pretty well. We're anxious to figure out how this is all going to unfold. And I know the you just announced the extension of the stay home and stay safe order until May fifteenth. Right. Um, uh, we'd love to hear what your thoughts are relative to how we're going to ease back into whatever the new normal may be. Sure. So it's important to know about you know safer at home does not mean we're not trying to open up, uh, you know, some avenues in the economy and, and get people some freedoms back. That is the underlying, um, you know, rules, if you will, or safety underpinning that allows us to do that. So, for instance, without any sort of a safer at home order, then people are back to playing pickup games of basketball or having large parties and things of this nature. Uh, 
really what we want from an economic standpoint. We know that as you open up each business, there's movement there, right? So let's take retail to go. Well, that means all the folks in the little retail shops that weren't currently open or big retail shops for that matter, that weren't currently open are now back at work and they're moving around and they're, you know, around each other and they're breathing some of the same air. You know, there's a little bit more chance of spread there. Um, But also we're going to see paychecks uh, go to people that maybe weren't getting paychecks. We're going to see businesses that are hanging, we're hanging on by their fingernails, hopefully get, um, you know, some business from that. Okay. So the, the calculation of safer at home is really, you're going to have movement, right? Do you want that movement to be in uh, geared towards a paycheck and getting people back into the economy? Or do you want that movement to be more geared towards, um, you know, having backyard barbecues, playing basketball, uh, swimming in the community pool, these sort of things. So safer at home actually goes with, um, opening the economy back up. Because if you didn't have that, you'd have a ton of movement. You'd see an, an increase in cases. You'd then have to back off of what you're doing on businesses. Uh, and, you know, the last thing we want, just think of the crisis and consumer confidence that we would have if we open some businesses and three weeks later, there's a huge spike and we're having to go backwards instead of forwards. So that's what we're trying to avoid there. Now, as we think about the businesses that are opening, let's take the first two that the governor mentioned. You've got elective surgeries. Now, I know uh, a lot of our doctors and hospitals uh, have expressed some concerns there, and we forwarded those on to the governor's chief of staff, and they're looking at that, and we'll see what happens with that today. Um, but regardless of what happens there, I think where our big system hospitals are, is they're not really ready to do things like cataract surgery, for instance, uh, plastic surgery, um, really much of anything at all because of a PPE concern, because of an infection concern, and because the situation on the ground here is a little bit different than it is in other parts of the state, and um, because the medical models are different you know, than they are in other parts of the state. So what would it look like if we uh, open up some elective surgery tomorrow? Well, I can't speak for every surgery center, but um, we talked to the hospital CEOs, the chief nursing officers, and chief medical officers pretty much daily. Um, Y'all may have heard of Peter Urbanowicz, who was with the Trump administration uh, up until six months ago as chief of staff for Health and Human Services. And now is my special advisor overseeing the unified health system response. Um, So what I'm told by Peter and his team is things like lancing um, and um, extracting, uh, I'm not using the right terms here, but doing the things necessary to check for cancer. Those are the kind of things that if we, if we, uh, uh, as soon as we open up for, for uh, elective surgery, those are the sort of things that would be done. You know, followed by the things that are, you've got a person that's, it's quote unquote elective, but they're in horrific pain and bedridden with pain and they need some, you know, spinal cord or something surgery, um, those sort of things. And then the hospitals have a whole kind of waterfall of, of factors that they think about with that. So like if I'm 75 with asthma, I might not get that uh, procedure. And if I'm 35 or 45 or 55 and ran a 10K, you know, last month, 
then it might be safe to get me that procedure faster. Um, so then the next thing would be uh, that we have on the, the, the plate right now is retail to go. So our hospitals and our doctors have a little bit of a concern there too. Uh, and that one is a little bit lower risk of infection. You know, you're not having people innovated when they go to retail to go. But the concern is just around the testing. So we're working with the state to get more testing. We're having some luck with that. Every day we get a little more. Um, and I feel like we need a little bit more testing around our, our next tranche of businesses that open up so that we can quickly isolate uh, increased infection and keep you know, the, the economic reopening going. People say, well, what are the next businesses after this business, after those two businesses? Well, if you look at the American Enterprise Institute's report, uh, Section 1, if you look at Section 1 of Section 2, that's kind of confusing, but if you look in the second part of the report, well, what is a Section 1 business? Or if you look at the John Hopkins uh, report that came out yesterday with Section 1 businesses, those are the sort of things that Governor Abbott is looking at and that people here locally um, and, and in other you know, places in the country. Are, are looking at. And so kind of a, a feel for that um, would be, you know, now Mark Cuban, who's on my committee, probably wouldn't like me to give this example. But at the far end, at the distant end of what we might look at, is everybody getting together uh, to watch the maps, right? 15,000 people, 19,000 people in the stadium. At the short end, you look at some of those section ones, financial services, consulting, some of those things that, you know, don't have a whole lot of, uh, of uh, you know, interplay with large crowds. And those might be the things that we look at next. I think the governor will take a lead on that. You'll hear a list from him on April uh, 27th of that. We're all looking at the same place for where that is, though. And when I say we are, are all doing that. Basically, every jurisdiction in America is looking at the same you know, list. John Hopkins, American Enterprise Institute, and every other group that's writing, really not much difference in what is a section one or first tier, or whatever you call it, business. So that's a long answer, but hopefully, hopefully that helps. Well, I, I noticed this morning on the news that Georgia is going to be opening up theaters next week. Um, and oh, okay, I forgot about that. Everybody... <laughs> <laughs> Except for crazy people are looking at their intersection. I'm sorry. So, uh, you know, they'll be the good laboratory for us to study uh, because they'll be able to tell us uh, with real time how, uh, how this will all happen. And I also have noticed how the studies, the case studies on, on how the spread happens within a restaurant, uh, which has all been very, very interesting. But one of the biggest impediments that we understand to be the issue is uh, in reopening completely is the availability of testing supplies and also tracing right. capabilities. Can you uh, talk about where we stand as a county in terms of our supply for testing materials and what the plans are relative to tracing? Sure. So unfortunately, Texas is dead last in uh, uh, number of tests uh, per capita. And so that's a real challenge, right? Um, we we have the capability in Texas. It might be a little better in Dallas because, I mean, every day we wake up and claw for more tests, right? 
I'll be able to announce, uh, I, I was able to announce new tests yesterday and I'll be able to announce new tests uh, later today. Um, but um, as we look at that, uh, I think currently in the state of Texas, as of, let's see, what would this be? Sunday night, we had 27 tests, uh, capability to do 27 tests per 100,000 people in our population. We need that to be up around 130 something for the doctors here locally. These would be the head of infectious disease for UT Southwestern, epidemiology for UT Southwestern, CEO of Parkland, uh, president of the Dallas County Medical Society, uh, Dr. Huang, of course, our public health authority, and some other doctors that all look at all this with their medical models. Um, we're, so we're a little over 100 100,000 short. Good news on that um, is that we claw and we get a little bit more each day. Got 100 yesterday. Expect to get uh, confirmation back from the feds today to let me use some of the overtest uh, at AAC and, and Ellis Davis to do mobile units that go to nursing homes and, and mobility challenge people. Um, so, you know, every day gets a little better. And then it's also our private testing gets a little better. We got some more tests for UT Southwestern, uh, what's that, Friday, I guess, or Saturday. So, um, you know, that gets a little better. The, the big thing that we need that we don't have right now um, is we have done the work necessary to make UT Southwestern and Parkland into a super test site like uh, the University of Washington was for um, Seattle when they had their outbreak. So we know this works. We saw it work in uh, Seattle. The, the problem, we bought all the machines, we've hired all the people, but we don't have the reagents, uh, which is the chemical necessary to run the test, or enough kits that fit our machines. And unfortunately, that's not something you can just go out on the market and buy right now. Uh, we need the federal and state government's help, mostly the federal government's help, frankly. Um, they're saying testing is a responsibility of the state, but the reality is the state of Texas doesn't have an FDA or a health and human services um, and CDC that works works on these things. Our health and human services, we do have a health and human services, but it doesn't do the same thing on these tests. So we need them to release some of those tests to us. And that would increase our testing 6,600 people a day for one day test. And that would get us pretty close to where the doctors say we need to be to have, you know, testing around that. But the testing, I'd say this too, the testing has to continue to increase, right? Because um, if you've got enough testing for retail to go, what happens when the next tranche of uh, businesses open up? You need to put testing around those businesses, right? It's not like the retail to go guys quit working and went and sat down while the other guys, you know, took their turn. So you've got to continue to build that capacity and uh, but if we could get the UT uh, Southwest in particular system going, the super test center going, then that would put us well on our way to having appropriate testing. Uh, the other thing on testing is the, te the UT Southwestern testing I'm talking about is COVID testing. It's where you go in, they swab your nose, we tell whether you have COVID at the time. The other testing that you've heard about uh, is the antibody test. This is a, an IgG, IgM test, similar to like you would get 
for a whole host of things like, you know, hepatitis or something. Um, but the challenge of that is, you know, any infection will make your IgG and IgMs go up. Uh, if you, um, so, so these are, are, are I should, uh, let me back up. IgM and IgGG uh, are things in your blood that go up to fight infection. All they really have right now is a test that is about 50% correct, 50% accurate, which is kind of useless, you know, from a scientific standpoint, a 50% test, and we're not even sure if it's 50 or 40 or 60, um, is not really all that helpful. So what Dr. Fauci has talked about, if you watch those press conferences, is that he thinks we're very close to getting an accurate test. Accurate doesn't mean 100% accurate, but accurate means something the FDA could approve, um, even in this time when they're going to approve just about anything to get going. So we need that, and then that needs to be mass-produced, and IgG, IgM tests are easy to mass-produce if you had one at work, and so that would allow you to test people who are not symptomatic at the time to see if they've already had asymptomatic COVID, right? And, and then you, you've heard about herd, herd immunity. Um, and one other factor is it's not completely clear that if you've had it once, you're absolutely not going to have it again. But um, that tends to be the way other COVID uh, you know, infections work. So the thought is if you could find people that already have the antibody, those would be folks that you would uh, you know, send back to work you know, even faster, maybe you could do a deal where it's, it's, it, this is a speculation, but maybe you do a deal when that comes out where it's everybody in section one and section two, and now we have the test that works, everybody in the other sections, uh, except for a few things uh, that have the positive antibody, okay? So that test is very important to us too, and that test has the potential you know, you can go in any doctor's office in America, and there's a backlog. They, there's plenty of IgG, IgM tests. Now, they're not COVID-specific, unfortunately, but uh, that is a test that is very simple to, um, you know, to administer with a, with a pinprick. And once they get it right, an IgG test takes 15 minutes, right? So, and, and theoretically, you know, if we're okay with people pricking their own skin, they could do that at home. They've, there's a lot of talk about doing the home testing, and that will be the thing that makes people feel more comfortable about getting out among others and not, and not being afraid of being infected uh, unknowingly. One of the things that we're talking an awful lot about is what can we do in an office setting um, in, in order to be able to go back to the office. And, and I know you have a, a team of advisors that are advising you. Uh, but we would be uh, we would welcome any discussion around design, air quality, any kind of issues that you think can help lead the way so that people can get back into their offices and, and uh, exercise appropriate social distancing so that we can get back to work. Um, any thoughts or ideas or plans around those those issues? Sure. So here's where the doctors and the CDC is right now. Um, you know, I hasten to add people, you know, I think there might be with some people a misinterpretation that there's a group of us here in Dallas uh, County who just kind of make up stuff as we go along, right? 
But the reality is when you look at these things about like, for instance, six foot distance, wearing masks, um, uh, the taking temperatures, uh, these things that are taking place in, in essential businesses, these are all CDC guidelines. Okay. Uh, they're CDC guidelines and they're also industry guidelines. So for instance, and your industry, no doubt will have some too. So if you look at the, the retail or manufacturing or what have, have you uh, rules, if you will, those are made in conjunction with the Texas retailers, the Texas manufacturers. So what we do is we take what the doctors say and the CDC says or is needed to keep the, the uh, business owners and workers safe. And then we ask the business owners and their trade associations, hey, what rules are you already working on? as far as, um, you know, keeping people safe. And so, for instance, with construction, I know you guys are into some construction. Um, the rules were the, I'm going to butcher their name, but it's the safety council for 24 different construction, you know, trade associations. Right. And so, right. yeah. And, and the person, by the way, who does the safety regulations, who oversees that right now, you know, we pulled a lot of people in for business. Is someone that y'all probably all know, Fred Propol, who's mm -hmm. the CEO of uh, Beck, right? On our call so, this morning. Yeah. So, um, as we look at what would you would need to do when you go back into your office, um, it would be those same similar things that you're seeing with essential businesses. So, it, if we had a situation where you're going to bring 20 employees back into the office. You're going to want them to take their temperature at home. You're going to want to go ahead and get you a forehead thermometer um, so that you can take their temperature as they come into work. Because if they have a, over a 99.6 temperature, you're going to want them to go home um, and not you know, work there because there's too much of a threat to your other employees. You're going to want to maintain six foot distancing. And so that means if, if in, in in your company, you normally have a meeting on Friday where everyone sits around the table. You may want a Zoom meeting that you know, because it's hard to sit around a table at six foot distance. Um, you want to make good, smart you know, decisions for yourself and your employees. It doesn't mean you have to wear a mask in your own office with the door shut. But under uh, the CDC guidelines and the rules here in Dallas, it does mean that when you're in common areas, um, you should wear your mask. Those masks keep, they don't really protect you from other people being sick. But what happens is if there's five of us in a work area and we all have our mask on, my mask will protect you from what I cough and breathe if I'm asymptomatic. And your mask will protect me. It's not that your mask protects you, it protects those around you mostly. Those sort of things, the six foot distance, the mask, the temperature, the hand washing. Uh, in your businesses, some of these safety breaks where you scrub really good, you know, probably are going to be less needed than just washing your hands every hour. But, you know, you could, you could take what's currently out there for those more uh, blue collar type, uh, you know, sweaty industries and, and pretty easily adapt and see what, how it would likely adapt to what you're doing. So give us a little bit of insight in, ter in terms of the hospital and healthcare workers and 
uh, they're under a tremendous amount of strain. I think we would all, uh, because we're, we, most of us do not work in that industry, but we, they're critical to what is happening uh, with this crisis. Can you give us a little bit of insight into how all of that is being managed uh, through this um, whole emergency situation? Sure. So, yeah, they're just heroic what they're doing. Um, and, and they're, you know, as you can imagine, it's, it's, uh, we're now, uh, for them, we're like two months into this because uh, they and people like me and, and those who are, are having to prepare for this were working uh, overtime and weekends in February uh, getting ready for this. But then, you know, from, say, March 10 forward, uh, they have been, you know, really, really uh, at it. And I think spirits are very good. Morale is very good. But it's, you know, similar to any long deployment. People begin to get, you know, fatigued. Um, it begins to have, you know, a, uh, a stress factor. Um, you know, we've been through a very stressful time when it looked like we didn't have enough ventilators and we were going to have to activate mass critical care. And that was very stressful for a lot of healthcare providers. A lot of tears shed as we worked through that. Um, that has improved thanks to Safer at Home. And, and so those horrible, you know, decisions don't have to be made. God willing. Um, but I think that, um, you know, they really, anything that you can do to thank them for their service, if you have a doctor in your neighborhood, a nurse in your neighborhood, heck, anybody that works in healthcare, a receptionist in your neighborhood, uh, telling them how much you appreciate them um, and what a heroic and great job they're doing, it goes a, a really long way. Um, you know, particularly now that. Um, this thing is getting to be kind of, you know, political and, and strange where people are having a protest and whatnot. Um, that clearly is not aimed towards a healthcare worker. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of these protests, for whatever reason, people want to have them around hospitals. And so it sure feels like to them that it's aimed at them. So anything you can do to shore them up, I think, is a very worthwhile thing. Well, I'm going to make one more comment and then our question, ask one more question, and then I'm going to turn it over to others who may have a question. Uh, one of the things that the Real Estate Council has been really, really engaged in is working in our low-income communities through various initiatives that we have. And uh, we have constant, constant, I mean, daily contact with nonprofits that are in those neighborhoods that are trying to serve uh, the community residents there who don't have a lot of resources. And the two issues that have really surfaced in terms of resiliency have been the food insecurity issues, as well as the lack of um, Wi-Fi and technology infrastructure in those neighborhoods. Uh, I'm sure you're learning a lot of lessons as we go along, and these are not surprising issues for you, I know. Uh, but uh, I, th I think there, hopefully there will be some opportunity to uh, post-crisis or maybe towards the end to figure out strategies so that when we have these types of situations ar arise in the future, we're prepared to address them in a little bit more meaningful way. Do you have any thoughts about that? Sure. So let's take food first. Uh, on food, the, you know, let this sink in. This thing started on March the 10th. That's when we got our first... Uh, COVID positive case uh, in North Texas. Okay, the first order was was uh, March the twelfth. Okay, the one that limited crowd size to five hundred people and put in 
you know, some rules, okay? Since then, since March the 10th, 70% of the people who are accessing the North Texas Food Bank never have been there before. Right. Okay. So what, what does that mean? Well, that, that gives you the breadth of how economically devastating this pandemic is, one. And, you know, two, it tells you that if, if suddenly your, your client load uh, is 70% uh, or that would be, that would be 70%, gosh, that would be what, uh, two, 330% more people, right? You know, 70 over 30. Um, assessing your your uh, uh, food bank that we were greatly dropping in the in the amount of food that we had for people and so by the end of the month the end of March rather I had sent the first star request in to the state which is a an emergency request to fund the North Texas food bank I got back a soft no you know judge you know, we can't do that the law doesn't allow it and I asked them to not send me a, an official note, but to let us try to change the federal law. There's a man named Tony Robinson, who is the FEMA Region 6 uh, administrator. He, the, the administrator for California and those surrounding states, Region 6 is Texas and all the states that touch it. And I lobbied, and we got that uh, rule changed um, so that now there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of food being shipped to North Texas Food Bank, and that's very good news. In the meantime, the bridge to that was neighbor to neighbor, the virtual food bank we set up. Um, and thanks to you know folks like you, we raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for uh, North Texas Food Bank. North Texas Food Bank, of course, is not the only food bank. Under the deal we worked out with the feds, uh, there are 21 food banks in Texas that are all in the Feeding America network that get federal support now. And this, this is a nationwide deal. So actually, you know, they get it everywhere else too, but that's not every food bank. What we were able to work out though with North Texas Food Bank as we started this is it, uh, whatever success we have, you have to lower the threshold so that every other food bank and every church and synagogue and whatnot that wants to be in the food, you know, giveaway business uh, can access you and use that as a way to get the food out. So that's gone you know, pretty well. On broadband, this is a problem that we have, uh, oh, but, but let me back up for a second on food, but you can still give to neighbor to neighbor um, by either going to dallascountycovid.org or just go to the front screen of, of at NTFB, the North Texas Food Bank, and you can click on the link and give to that. And your donation um, will, you know, help $25 We'll feed a family of four for a week. And um, so that's a great place, uh, you know, to, to, to give. Also, you can look on DallasCountyCOVID.org and you can actually volunteer at the food bank and other places that need your help. Going to broadband, that's been a problem that we've had before this happened, obviously. If, if Southern Dallas were its own city, right, it would be 40 percent as big as population wise all of Dallas but it would be one of the either I think it's the 15 most unconnected um, cities in America okay conversely if you got rid of southern Dallas and you made northern Dallas its own city it would be in the top 10 connected uh, places in 
in uh, America. And that's that's the city. That's not a snapshot of all the suburbs, but that gives you a feel for kind of the have and have not of of uh, broadband. Uh, now, John Stevens actually chairs uh, big businesses uh, for me on advising me uh, for the employers with over a thousand employees. And John and I have had some talks about that. Um, you know, what AT&T is doing is for an extra $5 a month, people can move to uh, a faster speed um, and there are payment plans and to work with people so they don't lose their device. Also on your non, so on your mobile phone, you, I'm going to get this wrong. I think you are throttled or something when you get to some certain amount of usage, but on your home. So like on, if I'm in South Dallas and I've got the internet in my house and I would be throttled, I would be shrunk back. Uh, which is a lot of these uh, lower price plans, the way they work, I'm not being throttled back right now. So my kid can do a bunch of homework and it's not throttling back now. Now it is on the phone and you can take care of that by paying an extra $5. That is not a long-term answer, clearly, right? But, you know, our communication is an essential service and it's, you know, very, very important right now you know, particularly right now, as we don't have, you know, the, it's a way that people are getting vital information. So um, that's what's going on there. I think the other phone companies are doing that, you know, as, as well in the short run. Long run is we have to invest in, you know, in broadband. Uh, you know, if you want your kids to do well in school, if you want our economy to grow, we got to have fast, uh, you know, broadband, fast uh, 5G all throughout. Uh, Dallas County and really North Texas. Well, thank you for that. It is a concern and I, uh, I appreciate your uh, working on that uh, on behalf of all the citizens of Dallas County. Um, Clay, I know you need to jump off, but do you have a couple of minutes for a few questions? Sure. Let's do lightning round of questions. Okay. that would be awesome. Um, who wants to ask the first question, Brian? First up is going to be Courtney Spellacy. Courtney. Hi, Courtney. Yes. Hi, thank you, Judge, for the time today. I have a question about how we tailor our economy in case we need to do intermittent uh, shelter in place. So my husband is a teacher. He's taught for over 20 years, and he knew about two weeks before spring break that they would not be returning after spring break. So he had already beta-tested software with his students, for example, and they you know, knew it was going to work. They've begun to have discussions about how to craft their curriculum and their programming in the fall in case there are surges and they need to take campuses um, you know, close campuses for like two weeks at a time and that kind of thing. As working professionals, even if our uh, we don't completely do shelter in place or close down places of business, if we essentially close school campuses, thereby eliminating childcare, I know don't want to call childcare, but eliminating that childcare option, how do we do that? And what does that look like? Well, uh, there's there's people looking at that now. So, you know, childcare and school are a key component of of how this will work, right? As you're talking about opening businesses, what happens to their kids? So the, the hope is on intermittent shelter in place. Again, it gets back to testing. But if you've got enough testing to be able to tell what's going on, you quickly isolate the problem, throttle that thing back. So for instance, you know, I hate to give examples of any industry, but uh, let's say we have an industry like restaurants. 
And let's say that sometime in the future, they uh, say, well, we're going to open restaurants, but it's going to be at 30% occupancy and you do this, this, that, and the other to stay safe. And so we do that and you have testing around that. And we find out that we're having outbreaks in restaurants like we are in nursing homes. But you wouldn't have to take everybody back into shelter at place. You just have to change what you're doing in restaurants. But that's the key of testing. See, without the testing, you open something up and you don't find out the effect of it until quite a bit later. Restaurants and, and going back to something we talked about earlier, movie theaters, okay, and bowling alleys and tattoo shops that they're opening and, play and, and hair salons, things like that that they're opening in Georgia. When you open up retail to go, a lot of people will use it, you know, perhaps. When you open up movie theaters, there will be a significant, probably vast majority of the people who don't think that's safe, and so they don't go, right? And so you don't get the effect of what actually happened with that until sometime in the future. The testing doesn't work as well on those fourth-tier things that people are opening in the first tier because most people have the good sense not to go. As we, if we do it thoughtfully and we have testing, hopefully we don't have to drive uh, back in. Big proviso to that is, and you're seeing this in some eastern countries, uh, eastern part of the you know world, world countries, they're trying to do it in a very thoughtful and scientific way, and they're still getting driven back in. So it's not completely uh, up to what happens with the uh, you know with with how well the government rolls something out or how well the public complies with it. Um, you know, the, to use a kind of a, a phrase, the disease has a, its own plan, too. So I don't know if that's completely helpful, but that's an answer. Brian, who's next? Next up, we have Ted Kalaha with OmniPlan. Um, doesn't look like he has a microphone. His question is, for high-density workplaces like call centers, uh, how are those going to have to be readapted? Well, in all, in all likelihood, there'd have to be a lot more spacing there. So under the CDC guidelines, the governor's guidelines, and our guidelines, if you can telecommute, you must telecommute. So, you know, in the beginning of this, there were bosses that said, hey, you know, I don't trust my people to work hard from home. I want them to come here and make those sales calls from their office. Well, if you follow the governor's timeline and our uh, or the, his, his rules and our rules, that's not the rule. The rule is only those things that have that can only be done in the office or done that. So call center might be an example of something you could do from home. And last question is kind of a crystal ball question uh, on large gatherings without masks. Is Are you in a position to make any sort of prediction of this, the date that those might be able to return? If you look at the John Hopkins and the American Enterprise Institute papers, those are the last things that you can safely do. I mean, it's just kind of common sense, right? If I'm in a football stadium with 100,000 people bouncing around, uh, that's going to be probably the most exposure I'm going to get. So those are the last things. Well, thank you very much for your time. Judge, we really, we really do appreciate your time. We also appreciate your leadership to know that you have uh, some supporters here uh, that are that have joined us today, but also in our membership that are willing to support you and however you need help as we get through this crisis. So thank you very much for giving us your time, and we look forward to 
getting through all of this together. Great. Thank you. Y'all have a wonderful day. That's all for today. We'd like to thank Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins for joining us. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, follow Trek on social media, and stay safe out there. As Linda said on the call, we will get through this together. Once again, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.